Welcome on into the show. My name is Danny Gallagher, and I am joined by the snare campaign provocateur, soon to be potentially knighted, the Prince of Las Vegas. It's Benny Horowitz. What's up, dude? I don't know if I could get any love like that in Las Vegas. I'm a decent roulette player. That's about it. And of course, I'm talking about you being on the same bill as Mr. Wayne Newton. How about that? You know, I was trying to think too. Someone was like, oh, I like Wayne Newton because of this. And I'm like, I think my first exposure to Wayne Newton was National Lampoon's Vegas Vacation. Yeah. When uh, <laughs> when, the, when the mom has a little affair with Wayne Newton and that one. But I mean, Donkashun, just right off. Or maybe that was it from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, him singing oh, Donkashun. Yeah. <laughs> that, might be, that might be where it came from. But I am stoked to play. That was a strange show. Yeah, but playing with Wayne Newton, cool with me. <laughs> I love it. You got and Duran Duran, Duran Duran. You got the Killers there. Um, you know, a few days away from meeting the guy who you practice emphatically to his music. A few days off from Mr. Bruno Mars, but oh, I know. I was pretty bummed about that. Yeah, always, but... always, always want to see Bruno Mars. That's right, especially when he's playing with his boy Anderson. But I think the Silk Sonic era. Uh, kind of came to an end the same time as everyone's COVID era did. So sadly enough, you think well, that's it, all we're gonna get from Silk Sonic? I mean, don't don't you think if they were torn together that that would he that it wouldn't just say Bruno Mars on the bill that it'd be Silk Sonic? Mm, I don't know. I don't think so. Bruno Mars is a much bigger name than yeah. Silk Sonic. That's true. So they might still pepper it in. Um, I hope we get more of that. Jeez, it's yeah. it's too good to not not go with a follow up. A hundred percent. But happy March. What's new with you, dude? How's it going? Oh, just, uh, you know, waiting for spring to come. It's funny how we got no snow all winter and then got a couple little mini storms here in March. But, uh, you know, I heard something about this global heating. It might be right. Global heating. Yeah. Who knows? (laughs) May uh, may, maybe enough to prevent you from going out and buying a snowblower down. Ah, Yeah, (laughs) I got away with it this year. I got away with it. Oh, I love it. I love it. But happy March. You know, so much happening. We're starting to get into concert season. We're starting to get into my favorite time of year, the college basketball, March Madness, conference championship week this week. Should we do a bracket with the tune-up listeners? Might as well. Sure. Sure. All right. I'll I'll whip that right up. Get get it out. Um, So, yeah, if uh, we'll we'll tweet it out on the socials and stuff like that. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling... Cautiously optimistic about my Golden Eagles. They take on UConn later today. But uh, Benny, who would be your team if you had to pick right now? Are, are you going with Rutgers? <laughs> no, I'm not going. Rutgers is go. You would have been. Yeah, Rutgers is in a pretty decent tailspin. I'm not not too sure about them right now. I don't know. I mean, some of the big boys are kind of hard to get away from. But I could see like one of these. Uh, you know, Villanova's or, um, you know, like, like one of them, like pulling mm. through, you know? Um, but as far as the talent goes, I mean, what about like these, these Alabamas and stuff like that, you know, they could get through. I think there's a bunch of chippy teams like that are going to be in the middle of the pack that, uh, that could definitely pop through. Yeah. And don't look now, but Duke's coming on strong. UNC may be out, but, but some of these are, program like duke and the acc struggled 24 and 8 now so yeah, duke, anyway. duke, duke always has that super freshman thing you know where you know these guys are such uh big prospects that they seem to get uh seemingly better as the season goes on so that's definitely a big part of it 
Where you know what gets better as the show goes on. <laughs> What's that? Time. It's this day in music history. Ah. Wasn't sure how we were going to land it there, but we landed the plane. What do you got? In, in 2003, Dixie Chicks lead singer Natalie Maines uh, got up on stage to a London audience just after the U.S. invasion of Iraq saying, in quotes, just so you know, we're on the good side with y'all. We don't want this war, this violence, and we're ashamed that the president of the United States is from Texas. Now, these days, this probably doesn't seem like a big deal, but this one single event by the Dixie Chicks kind of, you know, marked them in a certain way and basically destroyed their career in a lot of ways. Like they were kind of ascending in the you know, the pop country world and could have sat on top of that throne. And in one failed swoop, she, they, uh, you know, alienated so many people that they had to, you know, like change their name and change their entire approach to how they're doing it. And, uh, you know, I think that they stand in time as someone who took a very good stand about something. For someone like me, it was very relieving to hear somebody from the country world and Texas actually taking a stand at that time against something like that. But uh, I think it, it's gone a little, uh, it's been a little overshadowed um, what, a, what a hard stance that was for people like that to take and how much it affected their career. So that was all the way back in 2003. and. Wow. Um, you know, 20 years later, I don't know, like the Dixie Chicks completely altered their career as a result. So I got give them some credit, give them some props. Maybe, you know, a bunch of woke people should should buy more Dixie Chicks records to make up for it. <laughs> you know, what's funny about the Dixie Chicks now. So during like the whole, you know, uh, over the last few years, they now they go by just the chicks, right? Right. Or something so, like that, yeah. 20 years ago, they weren't like, oh, you know, like Dixieland, kind of not the thing that we should be doing. But now they're, it's like there's still the same set of facts, but apparently now they just moved with the uh, with the public needle. I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. Anyway, I'm, what, do you, what do you got for this day? All right. Well, we have a, a little bit of a, a story about machinations behind the scene between an artist and a record label. On this day in 1964, Paul Simon and Art, Gar and Art Garfunkel recorded The Sound of Silence as an <coughs> acoustic duo. It wasn't until the record company producers added electric guitar, bass, and drums without the knowledge of Paul and Art that the song would become a hit in 1965. So going wow. behind the back of Simon and Garfunkel, putting it out, and I, I was just wondering... In your experience, have you ever seen a record label after everything is done and the artist was like, cool, love this, add stuff to try to make it become more commercially successful? No, no. I mean, the thing that I've seen a lot is, you know, if you have an A&R person, you have someone at the label representing you. I've seen uh, many times somebody listening to a record, listening to a song and having to make one adjustment or one note or asking to. And I always thought that was more of a effort if this thing was very successful to say that, oh, this was my idea and I had some stake in what happened here as as 
you know, because the people on the business side are dying sometimes to be creative, you know, um, and when they have that chance, they usually jump on it and are quick to flute it in, in power meetings, you know, um, but no, I've never seen firsthand someone taking a song and behind their back, adding stuff and releasing it without the band knowing that's some, that's some straight up 1965 shit. I think I, I, you know, our, our guy at, at Disgraceland has probably done it, but I, I've listened to a whole episode about how that actually went down. But, um, but yeah, that's, man, that's, I mean, the thing that that story reminds me of is how, how early Simon and Garfunkel were kicking 1965. Yeah, yeah, come on. Yeah. That's that's early for that that beautiful type of music. They just came up in a, a chat last night where people were quoting their favorite Simon and Garfunkel lyrics in the uh in the going off track Patreon chat. How many people brought up uh uh being on the side of the uh New Jersey Turnpike? Not one. Wow. You gotta jump in next wow. time. Okay. I said uh I think my favorite is I get all the news I need from the weather report. <laughs> favorite lyrics by by Simon and Garfunkel. I love it. You know what the funny thing going to this uh uh labels changing records and, and stuff like that. Now they'll like add people to the song. So you'll put out like mm. and then they'll like add somebody to try to get it more streams and stuff like that. So right, why like like oh yeah, why did Ariana Grande's voice wind up on my track or something? Yeah, yeah. Oh my god, could you imagine that? <laughs> I mean. I take that one. She goes from doing the wicked movie to the next gaslight record. Boom. Hey, I'll take it. I'll take it. All right. Well, Benny, let's move on to our first headline of the day, shall we? In an interview with the Today Show, Jamie, yeah, that's right. How often do we bring up the Today Show on the show? Often. Not enough. I would Not argue. enough. Not enough. Um, Jamie Lee Curtis, who is up for an Oscar for Everything Everywhere All at Once. Um, she started to talk a little bit about music. Why? Because she turned down going to the Oscars uh, nominees dinner because it was too late. Um, the dinner was supposed to start at 7 p.m. Um, and she's like, that's around <coughs> the time that I normally go to bed. So I'm not going to try to eat at 9 p.m. But then, you know, she turned it to other areas of life, which is very much of the tune up variety. She turned it to music and she had this to say about why she would not go see Coldplay unless they did this. I'm also challenging musicians to do concerts during the day. You see, yes. why are there no matinees? Matinees, yes. yes. Okay, but seriously, I would love, for instance, I love Coldplay. Yes. I would love to go see Coldplay. I would love it. The problem is I'm not going to go see Coldplay if they start their show at 9 o'clock and there's an opening act. I want to hear Coldplay at 1 p.m. Yes. Major diss of the opening act by Jamie Always. Lee Curtis. Oh. <laughs> opening, opening a stadium show is maybe the worst job in music. Why is that? Because no one cares. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like it's it's like you're they might as well just be playing music over the louds. <laughs> um, so so. I think when it comes to shows like that, people should take take notice that nobody gives a shit about openers <laughs> unless you get a really, really serious one. Well, I don't know. Jamie Lee's making a pretty valid point. Mm. As you uh, were teasing me earlier, I just found out that I got a show where I got to get on stage at 1145. And, you know, I'm joking with management and stuff being like, listen, 
you got to look at Gaslit Anthem like Chris Paul, you know, like, like, do you want us to get through the playoffs? <laughs> then, you know, like you can't burn us out in the regular season. Um, you know, I can handle maybe one at that time, but I think there's some truth to this. Uh, and, and it is funny why there are no, like there's, there's matinees in every other, you know, facet of entertainment. And there isn't a lot of like, besides for festivals, obviously a lot of rock and roll matinees, but I mean, why on a Sunday or a Saturday can't one of those, especially for a band like Coldplay. And I'll tell you why that show is not getting set up the day of, yeah. you know, like that show is being set up like the week before. So as far as the start time goes and on the weekend, it does actually make sense. It's reasonable. Um, and I'd actually, I'd be here for it. There's been a lot of times where, listen, if you, you know, if you have kids, if you have a certain kind of job, you know, 10 to 11 o'clock starts to become the witching hour, you know, and, and often you go to concerts, people play two, three hour sets and you're going till 11, 12 and you're just burnt, you know, you're just burnt by the time they come on. So as much as I uh, fear standing on the side of, of old motherfuckers. Um, I think I'm actually with Jamie Lee on this one. It would be nice to see. A hundred percent. I know that the, the, the art center here, PNC used to do, you know, they'd have like crooners for like the senior citizens in the afternoon. This is a further assault by millennials on things that were, are considered for like the boomers and like even older than that. I want to have dinner at 4 PM. I want to go see a kick-ass show at 1 p.m., potentially on a Thursday. You know, with the work-from-home option, I could get all my work done in the morning, maybe do a little more at night, <laughs> see a saying. show in the middle of the day. I want this. This is good. Yeah, we'll, we'll start serving lunch options, you know? like it, it's it's Maybe it could open up a whole, whole new, uh, you know, like a whole new avenue of things, too, that you couldn't do because it's nighttime. You know, maybe you put some... Uh, festivities out in the yeah. parking lot for the yeah. late morning crowd you know and stuff like that when it's usually dark like why can't cold play set up a ferris wheel in the uh <laughs> parking lot of giant stadium or i guess there is a ferris yeah. wheel already in the <laughs> parking lot of giant stadium <laughs> oh that, that 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 could be a, a good thing for you guys because imagine this how many times on, on an actual serious note you know you, you've talked about you know you get done with the show and then you don't get to sleep till like three you guys pull into town morning you know what, what? What sound check normally? Like one o'clock? Mm, yeah, I, I'd say closer to like three, four normally. Oh, and tailgating. I don't know if if you see that in the chat. Dude, imagine every concert's like you know when you go to like 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 a Brewer game and people are just like because in college getting up and starting to drink at nine o'clock was cool for like a twelve p.m. tip. Gotta bring yeah. out the music. Yeah, tailgating. Alistair, great, <laughs> oh, idea. great idea. You're so right. Oh, I'd love to tailgate a gig, you know? Then I mean, but maybe this is why they did like maybe that's why they don't do it cuz yeah. they, you know, I don't know. The, the, everything about this seems to add up. I'm 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 here for it. As, I'm on the Jamie Lee bandwagon. As 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 we continue to, you know, dive into what's wrong with Ticketmaster, what's wrong with Live Nation, it it would not cost anybody anything to add early more early afternoon concerts to this. No, nah, the thing. only thing I, the only thing I would have to look into yeah is you know a lot of these concerts are you know 
staffed by union workers and mm. stuff like that. And I'm not sure, you know, what that would entail, um, you know, as far as that goes. But uh, yeah, I don't know, man. I'm here for it. Oh, and then also, a great dude, you got to just add him to, to, to the show. Alistair just making good points. Uh, if we can tailgate, then the venues can't overcharge for the beer. That's it. Last That's time it. I went to a show at a venue, it was like 18 bucks for like a tall boy. Oh, Crazy. it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. So, Get out there with the propane grill. Get some bergs oh, going. Oh, my oh, gosh. Come on. Bra- and then if, if you're performing, you could be on, on the road by what? Seven? <laughs> oh, how nice. How nice. We're on to something here. We're on we to are. Something. We are. All right. Uh, you know, let's move on to uh, a production that's on to something. A, a update on a previous tune-up story. Jonathan Majors, who's having a real moment right now. Creed 3 was awesome, was in that. Uh, was in, uh, I think he was in Ant-Man uh, and the Wasp, like Quantum Leap or whatever that movie was called. Dang. But he is set to star as Dennis Rodman in a film about uh, Dennis Rodman's infamous trip to Vegas, the upcoming film about Rodman's impromptu uh, trip to Vegas during the 1997-1998 season is apparently called 48 Hours in Vegas, which it's like it's like combining two great movies. You got 48 Hours and you got Vegas, but this is going to be very different. Um, <laughs> yeah, but that is it. Honeymoon in Vegas or leaving Las Vegas? Uh, Big difference. Big difference. <laughs> Jonathan Majors leaving Las Vegas as him playing Dennis Rodman. Um, oh. But this is this could be an iconic run here. The only thing that's like I don't think is awesome is. Dennis Rodman has has kids that are like similar age to uh, uh, Jonathan Majors. Do you really want someone around your age playing your dad? I mean, in this context, yes, because because it's you know, what year did that happen? That was in the what the the ninety ninety seven ninety eight yeah, yeah. ninety seven ninety eight range. So Rodman was still a young man then, and that makes that makes sense to me. Um, I I love Majors doing this part. He also uh, grew up partially in Texas in the Dallas area. Rodman is from Texas in the Dallas area. So as far as the sensibility and the, the, the speech and the vocab, you know, he might be able to nail it, even though Dennis Rodman has a very unique way of talking. Um, I'm here. You know why I'm here for this is, you know, at first I'm like, yeah, murky territory. And then I saw who was, uh, you know, behind it. The the directing duo that's going to be doing this is responsible for Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, 21 Jump Street, 22 Jump Street, Spider-Man movies, uh, Mitchell's versus the Machines. So I'm, I'm just guessing and inferring that it's going to be like entertaining and a little over the top and kind of fantastical, especially since, you know, I don't think we have a logbook of exactly what happened there, you know? Um, and I think there's going to be a lot of room for, for filling in the gap. So I, I love it. I think as long as it's approached in the way I think it will, which is sort of fun and, and glitzy and over the top, I think this could really work and majors is perfect for it. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's like, I, I imagine that the last dance helped them get this over the top. It sounds like these guys have wanted to do this for a while. Like I imagine before the last dance, they were like, all right, hangover meets, I don't know, like uh, meets trying to think of like a basketball movie. 
Like Hangover meets Hoosiers, and they're like, that's not the sales pitch. And then they're like, boom, see that? People love it. But there's going to be very little hoops in this, right? Yeah. I mean, if they're really just focusing on that 48 hours, like, um, you know, but but we're going to need a plot in there of some yeah. kind. There's got to be some conflict that needs to be resolved or something. You can't just show a guy in a bender spending money and, and fucking women. Uh, for 48 hours, um, which is probably what actually happened. So I- I'm I'm curious to see how they actually give this give this a plot, you know? Imagine like here, here here's what I kind of imagine, right? Like it's like collateral, you know, like the Tom Cruise movie where yeah. they're just like cruising around, but like the stakes are, are like I'm uh, a man puts his entire career on black. Jonathan Majors <laughs> is Dennis Rodman. <laughs> I could see it. Uh, who plays Carmen Electra? Hmm, it's a tough one, right? Yeah, these days it's like a like like a like a Sydney Sweeney or like a, the woman that played Pamela Anderson. <laughs> but that's yeah. kind of I don't know. I mean, I'm proudly uh, out of sort of the Maxim Magazine, you know, yeah. universe where whoever is you know young and looks like Carmen Electra, I probably don't know about, um, which is a good thing. So Carmen Electra will probably be cast with somebody I don't know. I yeah. <laughs> Johnny Depp's daughter's having a moment. She's in that show that's apparently spent a billion dollars uh, with, with The weekend. So who, who knows? You know, mm. A bunch of up-and-coming actors that this could be a, a good opportunity for. So. I mean, do you think that role is going to be taken seriously? Like someone's going to want to really fill those shoes? I think if the paycheck is right, anybody would want to fill those shoes, you know? Yeah, fair. fair. This isn't going to be an indie movie. No, no. <laughs> Oh, man. All right. Well, there's no easy transition to talk about John Morant here. Uh, John Morant won't be back for the Memphis Grizzlies for a little bit, at least for the next four games. That's what the team announced on Wednesday. Uh, The star guard is missing uh, Thursday's matchup against the Golden State Warriors as well. Um, This comes after uh, the incident, uh, multiple incidents for John Morant. Um, The latest one being he on Instagram live, held up a gun, had his shirt off. It looked like he was at a, uh, a adult establishment of some ver- variety. Um, a, a, a story that kind of hit a, a groundswell. Um, the Grizzlies and the Memphis area kind of kept it quiet about the situation with, uh, the 17-year-old family friend that he beat up at, at his house, uh, then running up when his mom was at the finish line in, in, in Memphis. Uh, so a, it seems like we have a situation with John Morant r- right now where he's 23. Uh, he knows he's rich. He's carrying uh, around guns, uh, brought his whole family to Memphis. So uh, just a, a, a real <laughs> mental health crisis for John Morant right now. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's obviously a tough one to to speculate on from the outside because, you know, there's obviously so much going on and there's been this pattern of, you know, issues and behavior, particularly through this season and some dangerous behavior, you know, like uh, with carrying around. I mean, like, like, you know, part of the thing is. um, And I think some people mentioned it is, you know, you're rich enough to have security detail. Right. And if you really think that there's some concerns and stuff like that, you really don't need to carry a gun. So, you know, I, I, I get the distinct impression with this John Morant thing that it goes a little beyond mental health and behavior. I I'm getting the sense by how Taylor Jenkins is talking about it and how other people are talking about it. 
I mean, are we dealing with like, is he a drunk? Is he an addict? You know, because they keep talking about, uh, you know, taking X amount of time to to write the ship and this and that. And, you know, what are you actually doing besides forgiving somebody time? And that's where I'm wondering, is he in like a, a two week rehab facility or something like that right now? Um, and, and they're kind of sweeping that part under the rug. I think it's a possibility. And with this pattern of behavior, you know, but, you know, the one thing that I will praise John Morant, give him credit for is, you know, he's a known to be a great teammate, a great person to have around, um, you know, people laud him and everything he's been doing uh, off the court um, has nothing to do with his teammates. It's got nothing to do with the team. He's kind of gone rogue. And this is somebody I'm really rooting for, honestly, to to see this through, because when that guy's between the lines, he's one of the most exciting players I've seen in the last few years by far. Um, and he's a young man, and and I really hope he gets it together. But I personally think that there's like something more at work here than than what we're actually hearing about. I mean, that's crisis management 101, right? Person does something, send them to some sort of rehabilitation situation, let the press die down. It, it's at a time in the season where the Grizzlies can afford it. John Morant could afford it. He really wasn't up for MVP where you need to be playing games like that. Yeah. Um, but that's all, all, all of the basketball talk. Um, I, I, I think uh, off the court for John Morant, I don't think we can possibly un- understand what it's like because – I don't think most people bring their entire family to where they are. I mean, you know, like you're, we hear about a Giannis doing it, but I, I think a, a lot of people aren't trying to big bring everyone to where they are, especially when you go from he's from South Carolina, um, bring them to a smaller market like Memphis. This isn't New York. This isn't yeah. L.A. So he probably feels like it's a lot more like, you know, he's got everybody there. They just kind of picked up and moved shop rather than, you know, if he's going to, to New York, people are kind of watching your back more. I don't think that's happening in Memphis. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. I mean, it, you can kind of take over that town, you yeah. know, in, in that sense. Um, but I mean, like, Stephen Adams is now out for the season. Like, I, I wouldn't be surprised if John Moran actually sat for the rest of the regular season at this point. Yeah. Um, I did hear Jalen Rose comment, and someone who, you know, has a good sense of, of what John Moran is going through in a lot of ways, and one point he made that I, I appreciated was like, you know, he's the financial, you know, floodgate to all of this. All of these people are reliant on his money to do the things that they want to do. And if he's the one who makes a decision now, I want to do this and I want to do that. The whole people, they have no choice but to go with him. You know, he has that much power and he can dictate the ship. So I hope he sees that and and like I said, I really hope I really hope he pulls it out. And the really important thing that I I'm, I've been proud of the discourse on this because if this would have happened with Allen Iverson back when AI was doing this thing, it it would have been a lot more about what's wrong with Allen Iverson and a particular culture. Now it's about, hey, is this young man okay? And I think that that's real progress for everybody. For sure. And I also, and this is going to come up in uh, one of our next couple segments too, is what happens to John Morant and David Stern's NBA? 
Oh, <laughs> and that that's that's definitely uh, another thing we're going to talk about in the Van Vliet. Hundred uh, yeah. percent. Well, let's waste no time and get to it. Fred Van Vliet has been fined thirty thousand um, dollars. He was publicly critical of official Ben Taylor. And, you know, I could read it. I could do all of the things. But you know what would be even better? Let's hear from the man himself on what was he thought was poor officiating. I mean, I don't mind. I'll take a fine. I don't really care. I thought, you know, um, Ben Taylor was fucking terrible tonight. Um, I thought that on most nights, you know, a couple of, the, you know, out of the three, there's one or two that just fucked the game up. You know, and it's, it's, it's been like that a couple couple games in a row. Um, Denver was tough, obviously. You come out tonight, you're competing pretty hard. The third quarter, I get a bullshit tech. Changes the whole dynamic of the game. Changes the whole flow of the game. And, um, you know, most of the refs are trying hard. I like a lot of the refs are trying hard. They're pretty fair. They communicate well. And then you got the other ones who just want to be dicks. And um, it just kind of fucks the game up. Nobody's coming to see that shit. They come to see the players. And um, I think we're losing a little bit of the fabric of what the NBA is and was. And um, it's been disappointing this season. Um, you can look up. Most of my texts this year have been with Ben Taylor officiating. So at a certain point as a player, you feel it's personal. And um, it's never a good place to be. That's not why we lost tonight. We got outplayed. Um, but it definitely makes it tougher to overcome. How awesome is this? You know, we always hear fans talk about, oh, the refs suck. How awesome is this to hear a guy on the court who this actually impacts his life being like, fuck that guy? Yeah, I mean, the one thing... I love about this is a great sweater. He looks great. And I love how composed he is talking about it. And, uh, and those are very composed curse words, you know, like, like usually when someone's dropping a fucking, they're like, fuck it. And he's like, Dave's just fucking terrible. I'm like, great use of the word fucking let's go raps. There you go, Alistair. Um, but I think this brings up a bigger, I mean, it's pretty obvious what's going on with Van Vliet. He's gotten eight technicals this year, five of which have been given by Ben Taylor's crew. So the idea that, you know, some refs do have it out for certain players and do. And, and I think there's some truth to the fact there has been refs in the history of the NBA, particularly in the last 20, 30 years, who enjoy making the game and the situation about them. It happens a lot. Um, and some refs do have very pointed problems with specific people. So um, the comments are fair, but I think this brings up a much bigger issue. And it's why I wanted to talk about it was, you know, this seems to be at a breaking point in the NBA here with the players and the refs and the way this is. And I think it's time for like some kind of summit or, you know, <laughs> some peace negotiations or something, because um, more and more players are making comments like this. and. Um, and it's a really bad look for the league when it's like this. And again, the, the reason I brought it up before was like Van Vliet got fined $30,000 for making this uh, comment. <coughs> That's the Adam Silver NBA. David Stern would have had his ass sitting down for at least three games for making comments like this, because you're essentially like, you know, outing uh the games is false you're you're presenting it to the fans like there's a false narrative going on and you're not actually seeing the real winner because of the way that these people are dictating the games and that's really unhealthy for the league and it's really unhealthy for fandom um 
so because Adam Silver never drops bombs and does stuff like that, and he's, you know, crowned himself as more of a peacemaker, then I think he's got to host a uh, some kind of summit somewhere, maybe beautiful outside of Toronto. You know, maybe let's go to northern Canada and have everyone meet and come up with some new stuff because, um, you know, this is this is hitting a breaking point, I think. And I think this is not only what he said, but the getting just kind of a really, really small fine for saying it. it it's 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 alluding to a lot that's wrong with the NBA right now. I think that this goes way beyond just the NBA. This is such a cultural thing in the culture. Fans are always like, oh, the refs suck. The players are like the refs suck. And and even beyond you know, sports in general, you know, you see it all the time in politics. Nobody can lose anymore without it being somebody else's fault. So I don't know if Adam Silver, you know, when you have these guys coming in that kind of like grew up that way, because, you know, they're they're pranced around in AAU um, and all of that stuff. I'm just not sure if Adam Silver can, you know, come in and be like, hey, we, we need to make a, a change when it comes to this. I don't know. I mean, he's got to he's got to do something because um, this isn't the last time this is going to come up this season. And, uh, you know, I think more high profile players and situations are about to come up. I mean, this was a regular season Raptors game with them, you know, a few games under 500, you know, like this isn't the most crucial situation and it's getting tons and tons of attention. I do think you're right that it does paint a larger cultural picture. I mean particularly these videos you see of even parents and things like that at youth games, you know, attacking refs and, you know, not being able to deal with, uh, you know, when you play sports and there's going to be some wrong calls from time to time, but maybe that's, you know, what Van Vliet was talking about. Some refs are good at communicating that and, you know, maybe taking it on the chin. I'll get you back this time, you know, and running a game more fluidly and some I think just have their middle finger up and maybe that's uh maybe that's where you where you start drawing the distinction. I mean, do we need another ref on the floor in the NBA? We need four or something? That'd be good. That'd be really good. I I think that that would help out a lot of people. I don't know, man. I think that's the hardest job in all of sports. I, I think being an official is even harder than being commissioner or or GM and, and stuff like that. And the NBA ha- has done no favors since the Donahue scandal to try to reinforce that everything is good and kosher and stuff like that. So I don't know. I, I think that that has towered over a generation of, of players because, you know, that was what we grew up with. And I don't think that that uh, stain, especially with, you know, they try to push documentaries and all of that stuff about it. I don't think that they've ever gotten that fully out of the game, especially now, you know, with the NBA fully embracing gambling and and them being league partners, I think a lot of stuff gets very murky. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah. And there's going to be more and more chatter about that. If you don't do something about it, Yeah, it's time for Adam silver to get busy with this in some way. Instead, he's focused on Mexico city and Vegas and Seattle and getting teams there. So, but yeah. So, all right, Benny, let's move on to the injury portion of the program. Shall we? You know, last week, as I was looking back at stuff we did last week, this morning, I 
walked back saying Kevin Durant is unreliable, and then he goes out and rolls his ankle before the home opener for his debut for the Suns. So he's going to be out uh, two to three weeks, just according to Shams, um, as probably probably more than that, probably as we get closer to the playoffs. My question here is, and we talk about the playoffs and, and chemistry and stuff like that, you know, the Suns have their core of, you know, I know CP's missed time, but they have Booker, they have Aiton, can KD be a guy that within a week they can plug in and be immediately dangerous in the playoffs? I mean, probably, but, but, you know, this is getting to a different point with Kevin Durant. I mean, it, it's a shame that I even have to talk this way because, you know, on the court when Kevin Durant's healthy and playing, we all know what he is, but you know, in the last few years, he played, I don't remember the exact numbers, but something like 129 of like 270 possible games for the Nets. Like, you know, 40% of the games he played for the Nets. And then he doesn't even make it to his home debut with the Suns. And even though Durant is uniquely a player that I think when healthy can pop in and help a team, I mean, he still needs to play 40 minutes on that team. Um, that team gave up all of its depth. I mean, behind the guys you just said, where we're quickly, you know, we're talking about the fifth, sixth, seventh best players on the Suns are Josh Akogi and Tory Craig and Ish Wainwright and, you know, um, this kind of littered cast of characters who are going to have to play heavy, heavy minutes like filling in for KD. So, as much as I do think Durant is a guy, if he's healthy, you can drop him in. We we just saw him do it, you know? For three games, the Suns looked like, oh, okay, this is now the team to beat in the West. Um, and if he comes back healthy, they probably still are. But now the variables and the, the murkiness of when he's going to come back, how healthy he's going to be, how many minutes you can run him, uh, you know, it just adds more and more questions and more and more variables. And this is adding to, you know, another guy who has never gotten through the playoffs healthy in Chris Paul. So I think it's a high level of concern. I think the two to three weeks, nobody ever comes back after being reevaluated in two, three weeks. Like, I do think this is more of a, it's a grade two ankle sprain. The guy's probably going to be gone at least a month and it's going to put him into the very end of the season or the playoffs. So, um, He's uniquely a guy that you can just jump in here, but I do think everything I was saying last week, I'm I'm even a more murky about because of stuff like this. And as you know, as a playoffs approach, that first round series is going to be very crucial for them. And it, it looks like it could potentially, you know, we don't know how far, uh, you know, if if they're going to climb or, or if Memphis is going going to fall, but like we could see potentially first round Suns Memphis as like a, a real possibility. And I, I don't know if you plug in a, a team with like that little chemistry. I don't know. It's nice. Yeah. And remember, you know, like the difference, you know, the Suns are pretty solidly in the four seed still, which currently would put them up against the Clippers in the first round. Tough matchup right there. But remember, I mean, if they drop a few games here, the, the difference from the five seed, to the 13 seed in the West is three games. Yeah. You know, like there is so much moving up and down. That's still going to happen in, in this, uh, in this stretch. 
I think you can assume Memphis might drop down a little because of the losses they're going to have. But then, you know, you got the Lakers surging. Who knows with mm. the Mavs, like the Warriors, like, you know, there's all these teams that could come make a run for your spot, uh, even the Clippers. So it, it is concerning, 100% concerning. The only team of these teams that I'd feel comfortable with them going up in the first round and, and you know, not really breaking a sweat would be Minnesota. But outside yeah. of that, every other team could get you. Yeah, 100%. So, all right. Well, you know, the team that we didn't bring up in this conversation of the Western Conference is New Orleans because mm. their main guy has is, has also hit a, a injury snag. Um, his... Zion Williamson's potential return to New Orleans pushed back again. He's running out of regular season r- runway. <laughs> uh, the Pelicans need him and Brandon Ingram to be successful. But I want to focus on Zion right now. Are we kind of reaching Bill Walton territory with Zion and the Pelicans where they're, they're going to have to maximize the time that they have Zion? Or do you, do you think that he's going to fully be in a position health-wise to achieve his potential? I don't know. You know, it's it's, you know, he's a young guy. And I, you know, you've seen people come into the league and have these kind of problems and find a way to smooth it out. Look at your boy, Brooke Lopez. That's true. You know, no one thought that, you know, after his young foot surgery, seven footer, you know, everyone thought he was going to be gone for ages. And, you know, it is what it is. But, you know, I'm not a doctor. I don't know Zion. I can't speculate on his health. But this has been the concern with Zion from the get go, right, is How healthy can he be? Can his body maintain? Can you maintain that kind of athleticism with that size? And, you know, this all begs to question that. And New Orleans, obviously, I mean, they slipped so badly once he was gone. I mean, wasn't New Orleans the one seed, the two seed? You know, just a couple months ago, like they were rolling. Um, I did kind of assume when Brandon Ingram came back that they would tread water a little better than they've been doing. And I do still expect New Orleans to make a little bit of a run towards, you know, uh, towards trying to get out of the play in here. I mean, they're only a, a game and a half be behind the Warriors in the six seed still. <coughs> but I think it's, um, I think it's really concerning. I don't think you're seeing Zion this year. And, uh, and I don't, I don't know what you do with this guy at this point. I mean, what, what can you do? But, it's been the big concern with him from the start, still a concern. And, you know, I hope you see the, the Zion we saw in these, these flashes, but, but it's getting a little harder to believe till you see a larger sample size. hundred percent. All right. Fielder's choice here. Do you want to go, do you want to talk MVP or coach of the year? Coach of the year. All right. Let's skip down to MVP. Um, I'm sure this Jokic and Bede conversation will still be there next year. I have a lot on it. I have a lot on it if you yeah, want to right. still hit it. Well, I, okay. <laughs> you know, but let's do coach of the year first and, and, and we'll see how, how time permits. Okay. All right. So the 2022 2023 NBA coach of the year is narrowing down. You have Sacramento Kings and the two seed in the Western Conference, Mike Brown, in the conversation. Joe Mazzula. Had a very strong case, and then the uh, Celtics dropped a couple games, fell out of the one seed. But Vegas does not seem to uh, think that that took him out of the running. And then there's also Tom Thibodeau, who has the Knicks surging. Um, all p- coaches outperforming what people thought that they were going to do, especially Missoula. I, I really feel like people thought the Celtics were going to take a step yeah. back. Benny, if season ends right now, 
And you have a vote. Who are you taking as your coach of the year? I love Mike Brown for this. Yeah, I do. I, I mean, I think like, you know, I think there's some things that need to come into play for coach of the year. And one of them is exceeding expectations, right? Um, and if there's a team, you know, I didn't hear anybody talking about Sacramento as the two seed coming into the year. I, I heard a lot of people going, oh, yeah, they're going to be better. They're maybe a playoff team now. But you put this new cast of characters together. You, you're, you're pairing Sabonis, who's kind of the strange default big point guard out there. You have to run kind of a really interesting offense. They're the fastest team in the league. They can they just score in bunches. I mean, you've also had a rookie starting at the three the entire season. There was a lot of question marks about the Aaron Fox, and I think a lot of those were answered, and Mike Brown really helped them. So for me, Mike Brown is definitely the front runner in this. Um, new crew of guys exceeding expectations. And I think the other people you can make a case for is the guys in the East, not only uh, Missoula, but you know, this is where sometimes I'm like, is it just the team? You know, like, like was Boston going to be this good? Yeah. Kind of whether you put anybody back there, I'm not sure. He definitely kept it floating. And I think people expected them to regress more, but um, he's also made, you know, I've, I've watched a lot of Boston games. They've let a lot of games slip away. They have a lot of uh, closing time problems, some kind of X's and O problems. I don't, I don't see them as being the best coach team in the league. And I think coach of the year for a team like that, who was so good last year and in the finals last year, um, you know, uh, I think, you know, you'd have to exceed that to be coach of the year. And he hasn't done that. One person you might want to talk about is your boy, Bud. You know, like they're the number one team in the East now. One or both of Giannis and Middleton has been hurt most of the season. They complete, they compete every game. They're really well coached. And, uh, you know, I know that they, I, I think, I think he's a little underrated now for, for how skillfully he's, he's kind of coached that team. No, you know, what bothers me about bud, right. Is that he keeps his rotations very short, especially like, I don't mind this in, in the playoffs, but when, when you're rolling out an eight man person, and it's the beginning of March. Granted, like you don't have Giannis and stuff like that, but they just signed, signed uh, Goran Dragic. Haven't seen him yet. Uh, they had Serge Ibaka, but was like, you're not making my my rotation. So it's almost like he's he, like, Bud's kind of like the mafia. Like, like you know, he, he keeps his friends close and his enemies closer. And by even closer, he means right next to him on the bench. So I'm not, I, I don't really love how he does that when John Horse is trying to put together a, a contender. But you're absolutely right. Uh, Bucks top of the Eastern Conference right now. Um, Bud and Mike Malone, by the way, for those of you that like to put down a wager, have better odds at a plus 600 of winning <laughs> coach of the year than Tom Thibodeau. So th there you go. Some free money up here right there. If you feel like putting it down, Mike Malone, <laughs> Mike Boonholz are plus 600. Yeah, yeah. I think I think Malone doesn't get it just because of the playoff thing. Yeah, maybe the same reason Jokic isn't going to win MVP. So, but you know, I, I I'd go Mike Brown with you there as well. Mike Brown minus one thirty. So, okay, that's good. not a great think. return on investment. No. All right, Benny. Um, 
Let's talk about, you know, we brought up Tibbs here. We Let's go Nick's past. We, we were talking about Nick's past. Let's talk about Nick's. Oh, no. We were talking about Nick's present. Let's talk about Nick's past. MSG legend Patrick Ewing was fired by Georgetown after six seasons, had a 75 and 109 record, including at one point, uh, seems like they just lost all of the Big East games in consecutive order. Ewing had one of the greatest college basketball careers at Georgetown, his head coaching career, not so much. This kind of made me want to open up a broader conversation with you. Does a failed coaching stint tarnish someone's legacy at a program that they're so closely connected to? Um, not necessarily. I don't think so. Uh, I do think it's two separate things and people see it as two separate things. But I mean, was there a Georgetown fan that was really fighting for Patrick Ewing to keep his job right now? I mean, they were literally 13 and 50 in the last two seasons, two and 18 in Big East play this year. And this is the new Big East, you know, not the old Big East. Oh, come on. Uh, Just as good. Just as good. Don't go. I'm sure. I'm sure. So, I mean, like he obviously lost complete control of this team or motivating, you know, I, I don't know what the problem is, but I, it alludes to something strange with Patrick Ewing. I mean, he was 14 seasons as an assistant coach uh, and could never crack a head coaching job. I don't think ever really got very close to even a head coaching job. Um, I think there's just something with coaching and Ewing that, that just didn't totally mesh. Um, I don't know if he's just uh, not that kind of leader, not that kind of motivator. Um, I haven't really watched it too closely, but he's had a pretty poor coaching record so far, you know, in, in all of his stops. So I don't know. I think it might be time to, is he going to go back to being an assistant coach in the NBA or, or just hang up his spurs from here? Yeah. You know, what's interesting that I, I, you know, I love seeing the the former players come and and try to do the coaching thing, whether it be college or the NBA, because a lot of these former players can recruit the heck out of it, but they cannot put the team around them to develop these guys, 18 to 22 year olds. You need to develop. And Patrick Ewing got a ton of, you know, his, his recruiting classes were awesome, but they, I mean, like he had the, uh, for a while there, he had that kid, Mac McClung, um, on, on his team who's solid player. I mean, granted didn't have, have what it, what it takes to crack a top five in, in the NBA, but in college, he, he still should have equated to wins and he didn't, but, got to say also Patrick Ewing thought exactly what you thought about the biggies <laughs> that he was going to come in here and run this thing. You got, you, you got some great coaches in the biggies, great teams in the biggies and not to make this a biggies ad because you know, I'm, I'm jacked up about it this time of year. You got four teams in top 25. These aren't scrubs. Patrick Ewing was coaching again. So maybe he needs to go down a level to try to rebuild up his resume. You know, I think the ex player thing, you know, kind of bites him in the ass. Sometimes it's almost like, when, uh, you know, a guy in a band becomes like a band manager and stuff like in order to be a coach, you kind of got to be the fucking stick in the mud a lot. You know, you got to be the person who is a little bit of a nerd, a little bit of a heel. You can't really be one of the guys. You know, it doesn't often work. You have to be somebody a little separate from that. And I think, you know, you saw it a little with Steve Nash and you know, maybe a little bit with Ewing where it's just like, you know, the, the skill set certainly doesn't match up. Um, 
And I know there are a lot of, you know, uh, ex-players who are great coaches, but they're, they're often not superstar players, yeah. you know, and players who hit that level. So I do think there's a disconnect between the two things. And, you know, you can't usually be a coach and be, you know, extremely well-liked and be one of the, like a member of the team. Yeah. And that's a default for an ex-player, you know? It's like, you know, you got to play the smaller rooms and all that stuff. Start out as your video coordinator, assistant, work your way onto the front of the bench and then get the job. And then those are the coaches that tend to be successful. Yeah, usually. All right. Last story today, a coach that was very successful, uh, Jim Beheim in Syracuse, out after 47 years as leader Ooh. of the program. Um, this happened on Wednesday, hours after their 77-74 loss at the ACC tournament. Um, Syracuse uh, announces that uh, Adrian Autry's taken over. Um, Beheim had an absolutely unprecedented run with this program, including a 2003 national championship, which features Carmelo Anthony, uh, 35 NCAA tournament appearances, five Final Fours, and really was in that era of like Roy Williams, Mike Shashevsky, Jim Beheim, Jim Calhoun, those like classic college coaches that you know. Uh, personified an era where the TV deals got big and the programs and the coaches got even bigger. Um, his 1,015 career wins ranked second all time behind Mike Shashevsky. Um, You know, a, a a sad end to a great tenure. Uh, he was coaching his son at one point. Um, but yeah, the legacy of uh, of Jim Beheim is unmatched and uh, really all, continues to signal the end of uh, what we knew college basketball was. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those like programs and names that just feels like part of the narrative, right? You know, like uh, it's confusing almost to be like, wait, who's going to coach Syracuse now? You know, the same way that, uh, you know, North Carolina is a little weird now. Duke's looking a little strange. So, yeah, I mean, I think we have a new era coming. So that being said, who is the marquee basketball, college basketball coach now? Well, I, I mean, Bill Self is there, obviously. Um, Nate Oates at Al Alabama tends to be a, a name that's up there. Uh, Mark View at Gonzaga. Man, dude. I love my guy Shaka. And I'm not just saying that because I experienced a lot of bad years, dude. He he could be national coach of the year this year. Like, and the he's he's up the Billy Donovan tree. I do it. I've said this to you offline before. I I, I could see in a, a couple years him either going to the NBA or wanting one of these blue job blue blue blood jobs. Wow, that is that that's a heck of a tongue twister. But uh no, like I could see him being a college basketball lifer. Maybe not at Marquette. But so? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about who? Huggins, West Virginia. Oh, he's Bobby Huggins is still there. Buzz Williams is still, is still doing doing his thing. There's still a bunch of names. They may not be, you know, I, I saw people advocating for how bad Butler season has been. They're like Brad Stevens should run both Butler and the Boston Celtics at the same time. So we'll see. Yeah, I do think what you said is probably the correct answer. It's got to be Bill Self right gotta now. Got to be right? Shaka Smart. I mean, Self's 30 fan. years in, 763 wins to 229 losses. You know, that's uh, he, he's probably the the new big boy in in the in the college basketball world. I'd say. Yeah. 
All right. Well, plenty of ways to get in contact with the show. You can email us at the tune up podcast at gmail.com to peas in there. Uh, if you want to follow the show on all the social platforms, we have the tune up HQ on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Be sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel. Thank you for everyone for participating today. Chat was on fire today. Chat was absolutely on, yeah. on fire. Uh, if you want to follow Benny on Instagram, he is at Benny Horwitz. I'm at Denny Gallagher on Instagram. Ben, you got anything else? Alistair, thanks for the commentary. Everybody love everybody. I'll see you next week. The show has ended. Go in peace. Enjoy the madness. You've been listening to and watching the tune-up. <laughs>